Mark Inc. Ministries presents the preaching and teaching of Dr. Chuck Betters of Glasgow Church in Bear, Delaware. This sermon is part of the In His Grip series that can be found along with other various resources by visiting our website at markinc.org. That's www.markinc.org. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Samuel. We need to build a context, if you will, of what it means to be a man after God's own heart. That is a term that is often used to describe David, that he is a man, or was a man, after God's own heart. But what does that mean? We need to study the life of David because of its messianic typology. You say, what do you mean? Well, I'm going to discuss this more in depth in future sermons, but much of the life of David points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we study the key points in David's life, we are actually getting snapshots of the Messiah to come. So for that reason alone, we need to study the life of David. But there's more. When I study this character, I see so many of the struggles that David had to endure reflected in my own life. Whenever the Bible tells us that these were men and women of like passions, just like you and me, sometimes that goes over my head. But it can't go over your head with David. When you study the life of David, you look at him and you see some of the things that he did and you say, that's me. I struggle with that. I have a problem with that. And when you look at the various epics in his life, when you look at the various things that happened in the life of David, you can almost paint a picture of yourself somewhere in his life. You can almost see yourself at every turning point in his life. David was a man that struggled against his own flesh in ways that are so typical of you and me. You can't miss it. And so for that reason, we need to study his life. But I think a third reason can be summarized this way. I think we need to study David's life because God says of David, this is a man after my own heart. And I don't know about you, but if, if I am truly walking as a Christian, that ought to be the desire of my heart. That ought to be that which gets me up in the morning and that which puts me to bed at night. That ought to be that which causes me to function in my day-to-day -day life. That I want to be a man after God's own heart. Do you want to be a man or a woman after God's own heart? And so when we study this character, we need to ask and answer that question, what does it mean to be a man or a woman after God's own heart? So for those three key reasons, I think we need to devote significant time to the study of this one character in Scripture that, is, that receives more space, more press, if you will, more chapters, more verses, uh, more insight, more stories than any other character in all of Scripture, the life of David. We're going to watch David go from slaying a giant, taking a slingshot and killing a giant to frothing at the mouth, playing the madman in the camp of the very people whose giant he slew. We're going to watch him go from the mountaintop to the valley, 
from a position of power and, and, and authority to a position of a madman, faking mental illness. That's our character, the highs and the lows. He's just like you. He's just like me. And when we fail to see the fallen condition focus of man, you know what else we miss? We miss the grace focus of God. We miss the grace focus of God. We fail to see that even in the midst of this kind of rebellion and disobedience, he was still a man after God's own heart. And you know, we need to focus. We need to, we need to see the bigger picture. And sometimes I think we miss that because we're so tuned into our own circumstances and our own pain and our own brokenness that we fail to see the bigger picture, that God is calling us to a majestic mosaic that he is building. And that that mosaic includes not only my own fallenness and my own frailty and my own humanity and my own failures similar to David's. Yes, I am capable of doing the same things and you are capable of doing the same things that David did. We don't like to think of it that way. You say, I would never do that. I would never do those things. The heart is desperately wicked. He would write in the 139th Psalm that in sin my mother conceived me. In sin, he knew that from his mother's womb, the capability of his heart and the depravity of his heart was so intense and so dark that he was capable of incredible amounts of evil. That's why David understood grace. He knew his heart. But you, I think sometimes we miss that. Sometimes we miss that. I had an opportunity to take my wife over the very last day of our vacation. We, I drove her over to Fort Lauderdale and uh, we went across Alligator Alley and we came to where she was going to speak at Coral Ridge at, the, uh, at Dr. James, D. James Kennedy's church to uh, the women there. And uh, I had the opportunity once again to carry her bags. <laughs> I love carrying her bags. This time I had to carry her crutches and her wheelchair and everything else. But we got her safely deposited there. And after three and a half weeks of this pushing around in wheelchairs, lugging her in and out of cars and all this other stuff, uh, I gotta tell you, I'll, I'll confess to her right here publicly. It was really good to dump her off to somebody else. <laughs> and I needed like 10 minutes to myself. And uh, so she went in to speak to the women, and I, uh, I went out to breakfast. I thought, I am going to get 15 minutes at breakfast by myself, drink my coffee. And uh, the waitress came to me. First thing I, I, you know, you get to these restaurants sometimes, and when you're only one person, they stick you in a chair right close to everybody else. You know, I, I don't like going to a restaurant and eating close to somebody else. I like a little distance. I like my space, if you know what I mean. Well, they put me in this chair, and all the other chairs around me were empty. And I thought, well, that's all right. I can still get some of that alone time. And I sat down, and she asked me what I wanted for breakfast. I said, everything on your menu. <laughs> and she brought everything on her menu. Big pancakes, eggs, ham, bacon, sausage. Uh, muffins, coffee. She says, you want orange juice? I said, yeah. What size? I said, large. Give me the largest you have. And this woman brought this, this 
plate of food. And I just sat there and I said, ha, ah, I'm just going to enjoy this breakfast. World, leave me alone. Let me have my breakfast. Then I looked up. Here comes the Bob story. <laughs> and there were three men. The waitress was leading the way. Three gay men. And they sat down right next to me. <laughs> now you say, how do you know they were gay? I knew they were gay. <laughs> now please stay with this story. Don't judge me yet. Stay with this story. I knew they were gay because one called the other Rose, the other called the other Betty. I can't remember what the third one's name was. By that time, the pancakes were having trouble getting down. <laughs> and I got to hear the sordid details of their sexual escapades the night before in graphic detail. I got to hear these men talk and act like women. Everything inside of me was repulsed by what I was watching. If I could have gotten up and run away, I would have. I heard about their relationships. I heard about their AIDS-infected partners. One of the men there had just broken up, and the other guy was with his partner, and they were consoling him and telling him it will take time for you to get over it. And on and on it went. I wanted to get up, run out, and take a bath. It absolutely infuriated and nauseated me. Until. Almost like a light bulb went on. And the spirit of the living God said to me, in such a clear voice, the next best thing to an audible voice, he said to me, and you preach that you understand grace. Where's your grace now? All of my judgment, all of my repulsion, all of my hatred, all of my prejudice, all of my moral pride just seemed to come out of my mouth. And God spoke to my heart and said, Chuck, how do you know that these are not my elect children? How do you know that? Are you so moral that your sins are of lesser consequence than their sins? And you know, God, being God, wouldn't just leave it there. He began to enumerate for me my sins, starting with my own sin of pride and arrogance with the people sitting right beside me. That waitress 
an old woman who more than likely did not know the Lord, at least based on her language, treated those men with greater dignity than I did, with more respect than I did. And instead of wanting to run away because I was repulsed by their behavior, I wanted to crawl under the table because I was so repulsed by my own. Grace. You can't study the life of David without understanding grace, without understanding the depravity of his heart in light of divine grace. And when God began to enumerate my own sins, there suddenly paled in insignificance. Now please do not misunderstand me. I believe these men have chosen a lifestyle that is both anti-biblical and completely immoral. But that does not negate the sin in my own life and the judgments in my own life, the things I need to do to clean up my own life. How quick we are as Christians to miss the point. What is it to be a man after God's own heart? Well, we need to build the context. Go back to 1 Samuel chapter 8, if you will, please. 1 Samuel chapter 8. The people now are crying because they want a king. They looked around at the nations around them and they saw that all of the nations were governed by an earthly king. We come to the period of, of the, the end of the period of what we call the judges in Scripture, which ends with this almost traumatic phrase that says, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. You have this nation steeped in humanism, this nation that is steeped in, in, in a void or a vacuum of leadership. And they look around. The people look around and they see, well, Philistia has a king. And there's a king over here with the Kenites, and there's a king over here with these people, and, and every nation around them seemed to be governed by a king, and now they begin to clamor for a king, failing to understand the hopelessness of their condition, their lostness, this void of leadership. There was one man that kind of was the titular head of the nation. Although he was not a king, he was given over to the service of God by his mother, Hannah. She gave him to the priest to raise. She abdicated her own responsibility for the sake of the glory of God, and she gave this baby over to be raised by the priest so that her son one day would rise up and create or give to the nation some sense of moral leadership. So Samuel was born. Samuel became a prophet and a priest in a real sense of the word and gave this moral leadership to the people. In the process, I think it's important to note, Samuel, in serving the church, lost his own children in the process. When Samuel's sons were older, he took a look at his own children 
and he took a look at the contribution he made as a father to his own children and he had no legacy, no heritage. He had nothing to give back to the people in the sense of moral leadership when he was dead and gone. He was too busy traveling. He was too busy going up and down Judah and Israel. He's too busy traveling through the, the ministry of the people and ministering to the flock. But in the process, he lost his own kids. It's a tragic story. But during the height of his own sense of moral leadership, 1 Samuel 8 says, they said to him, the elders convened a summit, if you will. They held a presbytery meeting at Ramah. And they gave Samuel their reasons for their request. Look at what they say, beginning with verse 5. They said to him, you are old. And your sons do not walk in your ways. In other words, Samuel, you're going to die. You're not always going to be here. Yes, we can follow you now, but you're not always going to be here. What are we going to do when you're dead? Your sons don't follow you. So here's what we want you to do. We want you to appoint a king over us, to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. Now, why would it displease him? It would displease him because God wanted Israel to function in a theocracy, not a monarchy. A theocracy is God is the king. A monarchy is some human being is the king. So it displeased Samuel. He saw where this was going. He saw that the nation was losing its sense of moral balance. That the nation was beginning to thumb its nose at God. That the nation understood that when he was dead and gone, he hadn't developed good leaders under him. Especially in his own family. So they said, give us a king. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. Now you'll notice that God equates their request for a king to rejection of him as king. God saw this as you as a nation are rejecting me as your king. But listen to them, Samuel. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Samuel, this isn't new. This isn't new. Now, what did the people do? They did what we did as a nation a few years ago. They chose a candidate on the basis of image. They chose a candidate on the basis of sound bites. They chose a candidate on the basis of outward appearance, electability, and sound bites. They chose Saul because he was tall, dark, and handsome. The Bible makes that very clear. He was 40 years old. He was popular. 
He had a very high approval rating, but he lacked character. Does this sound familiar? He lacked character. You see, we're not going through something new. This is old. Image is everything, they said. But before long, Saul's real person emerged. He was prone to hot-tempered outbursts, bouts of intense depression, capable of incredible degrees of evil. He was a jealous man, bent on control. He was obsessed with fame. He always wanted to be in the spotlight, and he even was a murderer. But he was tall, dark, and handsome. He was their man. That's who we want. Image is everything. God says to Samuel, listen to them. For you see what I'm going to do is I'm going to give them what they want. God does that, you know. When we decide we're going to step out of scriptural character and we're going to demand of God things that we know are contrary to his word, he will oftentimes give us those things and deliver us over to them. He'll allow us to see what we really look like from the inside out, just like he did to me in that restaurant. He gave me a very good look at what I look like inside. How depraved and evil the heart is. How full of its own self we can be. And he says to them, you want Saul? You want a king? You want someone with image? I'll give you someone with image. I'll give you Saul. So Samuel goes to Saul and anoints him privately. He was a nothing and a nobody as far as his roots are concerned. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 21. Saul answered, but... Am I not a Benjamite from the smallest tribe of Israel? And is not my clan the least of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why do you say such a thing to me? I'm just a puny backwoods guy. I'm just a, I'm just a piece of dirt from this least of the tribes. At one point in his life, he understood that. But something happened. It's called power. Something happened to the character of the man. Now, I want to show you something. It's important to understand this. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 15. Here's the story. Beginning with verse 1, Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over this people, Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up out of Egypt. Now you have to go back and read that story. When Israel was coming up out of Egypt, the women and the children and the weak and the infirmed were in the rear of the pack. The Amalekites surrounded the rear of the pack and waylaid Israel and attacked their women and their children and their weakest 
uh, and their most infirm people. And, and, and it was a bitter exchange. And God promised then, I'm going to bring judgment to these Amalekites. They're not going to get away with this. They appear like they're getting away with it now. But down the road, I am going to bring the full measure of my justice against these people. So now Samuel goes to Saul and he says, now I've anointed you king. This is what God says. I am now evening up the score with these Amalekites. Here's what I want you to do. Verse 3. Now go, attack the Amalekites, and totally do to them what they did to Israel. That's how you have to read this now. It's a gory picture. Destroy everything that belongs to them. What's that word? Destroy, what's the word? Everything, underline that, everything. Now what does everything mean? What we know it doesn't mean is some things. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Now, that's a whole new sermon. There's a sense of outrage in you right now, isn't there? How could that God order that kind of genocide? Not only do I want you to destroy everything that they own, I want you to destroy their lives. I want you to take the men, I want you to take the women, I want you to kill the infants, I want you to kill the children because I don't want any offspring. I don't want the Amalekites to ever come up again and say, here are the Amalekites. The Amalekites as a people need to be wiped out in judgment for what they did to Israel. Now those were the orders. Got the picture? So Saul summoned the men and mustered them at Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers, 10,000 men from Judah. He goes down to the Kenites and he says, you were good to Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So uh, here's fair warning. Get out of town. There's going to be a big slaughter here. So the Kenites pack up their bags and they take off. Saul says to them, we're going to have mercy on you because you had mercy on Israel. Hit the road. And they hit the road. He sets an ambush. He goes in. And verse 7 says he attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, to the east of Egypt. Go back up to verse 3. Here are the orders. Now go, attack the Amalekites, and totally destroy everything. Kill the men, kill the women, kill the infants, kill the children, kill the donkeys, kill the cattle. I don't want to hear any sheep bleeding. I don't want to hear any cows mooing. I want them totally and completely obliterated from the face of the earth. And Saul, I want you to do that. Verse 8. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. Uh-oh. And all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. Verse 9, but Saul and the army spared, spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the cattle 
the fat calves, not the skinny ones, the lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely. But everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Now verse 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I am grieved that I've made Saul king. Please don't misunderstand that. Anthropomorphic language always refers to God expressing feelings in human terms so that man can comprehend the depth of his heart. God is not saying, oops, I made a mistake. He knew what would happen when he chose Saul. He gave them Saul, but now he's saying, I am grieved because sin always grieves God. I'm grieved that I made Saul king. Because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was troubled. See, this is a man who knows the heart of God. What troubles God troubles Samuel. Can you say that of yourself? What troubles God troubles you. It troubled him so much that he laid up, he, he laid awake all night, grieving before God, mourning before God, laboring before God, because he knew God was upset. It upset him. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. Get this. But he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There, he set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. Saul leaves this scene and he goes to Carmel. And there on Carmel, guess what he does? He builds a monument to himself. But he's not finished. He goes from Carmel to Gilgal. Samuel meets him there. Samuel says to him, well, let's read it. Samuel says to him, uh, verse 15, uh, verse 14, but Samuel, uh, verse 13, when Samuel reached him, Saul said, the Lord bless you. Here comes the religious talk now. The Lord bless you. This is the same guy, forgive me, who does one thing in the White House and then goes to church. The same guy who has no character, who wants to preserve his image. And so when the number one moral leader of the nation is standing before him, God bless you, brother. God bless you. Does Samuel say? I've carried out the Lord's instructions. I did everything that I was told to do. Samuel said, and we got a problem here. I hear sheep baying and, coos, and, moo, uh, and cows mooing. Uh, what's this bleeding in my ears that I hear? You, you say you carried out the instructions. I smell the cows and I, and I hear the sheep. What's this mean? Oh, that's not a problem. Is doesn't mean is. 
It means something else. You see, here's what we're going to do. We purposely kept these animals. See, they're fat. They're the biggest ones. And what we're going to do is we're going to take these cattle and these animals and we're going to go down to Gilgal and we're going to sacrifice them and make provisions for them to be sacrificed by your people to your God. Did you pick that up? Verse 15, Saul answered, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and the cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Now we're getting into the man's heart, aren't we? But we totally destroyed the rest. The soldiers did this, but we totally destroyed the rest. But, you know, I agree with what these soldiers did. It provides some sacrificial material for us at Gilgal. Stop! Samuel said to Saul, Let me tell you what the Lord told me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, we read that verse, did you not become head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. He sent you on a mission. Then he rehearses what he told him to do. Why, verse 19, did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took the sheep. The soldiers took the cattle. The best of what was devoted to God in order to sacrifice them, here's the second time now, to the Lord your God at Gilgal. He is cloaking his disobedience in religious lingo. He is covering up his heart and he is using religious lingo to do it. You say, that's awful. You do it all the time. We do it all the time. We cloak what's really in the heart. We cover it up and somehow or another rationalize and excuse our disobedience with colorful religious language. Is it going to make a difference in you deciding as a father, I am not going to have children who are raised with a mentality of entitlement? I'm going to teach my children the meaning of grace. I'm going to balance it with law. I'm going to show them that God is a God who is angered at disobedience. So Saul hears from Samuel. Samuel says to Saul, do you really think that that's what God's concerned about? Is not God concerned about obedience because to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed. You know what heed means? It means listen and change is better than offering ramps. I don't care if you offer 50 cattle. I don't care if you give 100% of your money. I don't care if you spend hours in the church. I don't care if you witness to 10,000 people. I don't care if you, if you stand up and preach 1,000 sermons. If your heart is not changed, if that wickedness and that depravity is still there, it doesn't matter. You know what God says to us?
in a little different way. Chuck, as you're sitting in Denny's, what is this bleeding of the sheep that I hear in my ears? What is this lowing of the cattle I'm listening to? While you sit in judgment of those around you with your own hate. But Lord, I can sure preach against that sin. I can preach against it with the best of them. I can show you scripturally why they're wrong. I know that, Chuck, and they are wrong. Do you love them? See, I commanded you to love them. I may very well have died for them on the cross. You may be the only epistle they ever read. And the more he talked, the more I crawled. So he says to Samuel, or Saul, stop. Verse 23, for rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft. That's what divination means there. You're no better than a witch. He's calling him a witch. You're a witch. And arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Now you would think that would get to the man. You would think that the moral and spiritual and prophetic and priestly leader of the nation who anointed you king would get through to you. You would think that the man would drop on his face before God and say, I am an evil man. You're absolutely right. I have sinned. I am offensive to God. Please, God, forgive me in your grace and mercy. Please, oh God, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. You would think that's what he would say. We've heard this kind of repentance before. Verse 24, then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's commands and your instructions. It would have been great if he stopped there. It would have been great. But here's the excuse. I was afraid of the people. And so I gave in to them. He's blaming them again. It's their fault. They pushed me. They pushed me to this. Now I beg you, forgive my sin. By the way, Samuel couldn't forgive sins. Forgive my sin and come back with me because you see images everything. And if I go back and you're not with me, we got a problem. I'm the king. We all know that. But you're Samuel and the people respect you. And if I show up without you, I'm in trouble. My image is in the toilet. Does that sound like repentance to you? I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe and it tore. By the way, you don't touch a priestly robe. You know, he touched it, he tore it. Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Saul replied, I've sinned. There it is again. I've sinned. He had the handkerchief out. The tears were coming down his cheeks. 
I've sinned. Then granted, he stopped there. Here he goes again. But please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me Ah, so that I may worship the Lord your God. There it is for the third time. It's not the Lord my God. It's the Lord your God. The man doesn't even know the Lord. So Samuel went back with Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. That's a whole new sermon. Then Samuel said, and this is why he went back, by the way. Samuel said, bring me Agag of the Amalekites. Saul goes back to church. He thinks his image is being preserved. Samuel says, where's Agag? Bring me Agag. Agag came to him confidently, thinking, surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so will your mother be childless among women. And Samuel put Agag to death before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel left for Ramah. But Saul went up to his home in Gibeah of Saul. That's where he built his monument. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again. And I have this underlined, though Samuel mourned for him. And the Lord was grieved that he made Saul king over Israel. You say, Pastor, I thought this was a series on David. You've been talking a lot about Saul. This is the background, the backdrop into which David is introduced onto the scene. David becomes a season of refreshment for a people that had become frightened, had lost hope, and had been under the culture of a madman for years. Long before anybody knew God had rejected Saul, God rejected Saul. I want you to think about that for a moment as we close. Long before anyone else knew that God had rejected Saul, God had rejected Saul. That's a frightening thought. And I say it unapologetically. You see, you can't experience the grace until you can understand the depth of the depravity. This is the backdrop, but God does not abandon his own. Grace emerges when Saul's character led the people into great disillusionment, insecurity, and international danger. God once again speaks, and for the first time, we are introduced in Scripture to a man named David. This program has been brought to you by Mark Inc. Ministries, proclaiming the truth that God is sovereign and you can trust him. Please visit us online at markinc.org to learn about other available sermons and resources.